0: Galatians chapter 6 verse 14 the apostle Paul makes a very profound statement about the cross. He says, "But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." One paraphrase of what Paul says in Galatians 6:14 is this, listen closely. I am going to boast about nothing but the cross of our Master, Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, I have been crucified in relation to the world, set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into the little patterns that they dictate. There is a freedom from the handle the world has on me and a new level of commitment and dedication to my life in Christ. It's almost as Paul is saying, I'm dead to the opinions of others in this world. I am dead to the entrapments of things of this world. I am dead to the sins of this world. I am dead to my own ambitions. I'm only going to glory in the cross and the new life that has come to me because I have believed upon the Savior who died upon that cross. It was those deep moments of reflection about Galatians 6.14 that caused Isaac Watts to write, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Matter of fact, the very title, when he first wrote the hymn, it was not titled, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It was actually titled, Crucifixion to the World by the Cross of Christ, Galatians 6.14. I mean, that was the title of the hymn. It was traditional that hymns back in those days would have, the theme of the hymn became the title. So, the whole song is about dying to self, and living to Christ, dying to your wants, your ways, your ambitions, turning away from those things, and turning your heart to Christ and the love that was expressed through the cross. And so he entitled it, Crucifixion to the World by the Cross of Christ, Galatians 6.14. Listen to some of the verses. You sang them a moment ago. Obviously, there are five stanzas to this song. There was We uh, recently, in days, the, the contemporary writers have added the chorus that we sang. But the, the verses of the song are the same. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Verse 2, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most... I sacrifice them to His blood. Verse 3, see from His head, His hands, His feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown. Verse 4, His dying crimson like a robe spreads o'er His body on the tree. Then I am dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. It's a it's a, it's a confirmation that when this man looked upon the cross, he saw the love of God, the richness of God's love, God's willingness to go so far to love him and redeemed him that the hold this world had on him began to lose its grip. And the hold he began to have on Christ began to get stronger. Then all I am dead, then I am dead to all the globe and all the globe is dead to me. And then it ends with this climax about, I wish I had something to give God, but even if for the whole realm of nature mine, that were present, a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I said to you a moment ago that this is the first Christian hymn in the history of the church that used the word I. Prior to this moment, all the hymns were very intellectual songs that sang about the doctrines of the church. And while this is a song about doctrine, it is a song about personal reflection of the doctrine of the cross. And it brings us to the question, what do you see when you survey the cross? What emotions do you feel when you look upon the cross? Has the cross become such a commonplace? I mean, it, it's in vogue right now to decorate in the cross. It's in vogue to have jewelry that is a symbol of the cross. I mean, I mean, even more so than in days past. The cross, even for those who don't believe its Savior, even for those who could care less about its meaning, it is in vogue to decorate with crosses. And has the cross become an artifact? Has it become a, just another ornament on our wall? What really happens to you when you gaze upon it? Has it become so readily available in our imagery today that it elicits no emotion at all it elicits no feeling at all have it has it become so commonplace that we have taken for granted so i bring you back to a 303 year old question what happens to you when you survey the wondrous cross what do you see we know what the apostle paul saw according to galatians 6:14 he saw a call to die to himself and to live in Christ. Matter of fact, he sums up the call that he sees when he comes to the cross. In Galatians chapter 2.20, he said it this way, I have been crucified with Christ. That means I am dead on my own cross. Spiritually, I have died with Christ. Paul says, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me, On the cross. So Paul said, in the same way Jesus physically went to the cross, I have come and accepted His work for me. I have given my life to Him. I have crucified Paul. Paul is dead. Paul's ambitions, Paul's wants, Paul's desires, Paul's habits, Paul's way, Paul's will is no longer alive. He is dead. But yet still I live, he said. But it's not Paul that lives. It's Christ that lives in me. So when the Apostle Paul looked upon the cross, when he surveyed the wondrous cross, he saw a call to self-denial. He saw a call to die to Paul's way, that he might truly live in the kingdom way, the will of God in his life. When I looked at the story, knowing that next Sunday is Palm Sunday, that's the beginning of Passion Week, And every day in Palm Sunday and Passion Week is significant. And we, our past illustrated sermons have talked about the significance of each day in the life of Christ. That begins next Sunday. And I think it's really important as we close in on Easter and we come up on next Sunday being Palm Sunday that we wrap our minds around the significance of the cross again in our faith and in our personal lives. So when I read through the Easter story, when I read through the Passion Week again over the last few days... I was amazed at how many people that are in this story who first-handedly gazed upon the cross. And I wondered, what, what were the emotions? What did they see and feel when they surveyed the cross? Some of the characters that play out in the, the Passion Week story are the Roman soldiers. You know, the ones that cast lots and gambled for Jesus' clothes there at the foot of the cross. Here are men that are right underneath a bleeding man who has claimed to be the Son of God, the Master, the Messiah, a man who has loved them. Some of these men may have beaten Him. They've ridiculed Him. They've spit upon Him. One of them may have been the one that drove the sword in between His ribs and punctured the fluid-filled sack around His heart. I don't know which four there were, but there were four soldiers underneath the cross that were face-to-face with the Son of God in His most agonizing moment, and yet they did not see Him for what He was, they saw Him as a souvenir. Matter of fact, the Scripture says in John 19, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also His tunic. But the tunic was seamless. means it was one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots or gamble to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture which said, and this was an Old Testament prophecy that, about the Messiah, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. When these soldiers looked upon the cross, they didn't see a Savior. They didn't see a conquering king. They didn't even see a holy man. When they looked upon this cross, all they saw was a souvenir. When I think about their perspective of the cross, I wonder how many times that so many of us come in and out of the doors of the church and growing up in Texas or, or the South, if you've grown up here, or, or living in a nation where Christianity seems to be the religion of the day and, and, and even though it's not the version of Christianity that, that our grandfather grew up in, it, it, it's, it's a religion that our country holds to, and yet maybe it is so commonplace that our religion, our faith in Christ is more, more than life transformation. It's not that at all. It, is, it has become a souvenir, a nice little added value to our life. We've got our real life over here and we've got our religious life over there and we dip into our religious life and carry it on through with us as a souvenir. It's just a nice little memory. We have our baptism certificate or our dedication certificate or the date we prayed the sinner's prayer written down in our Bible and those are not significant moments of life transformation to us. They are nice little souvenirs for us to carry with us throughout life. And according to the Apostle Paul, when you look upon the cross... And you see it for what it is. And you receive Christ for who He is. He will not be a souvenir you carry with you for the rest of your life. Or simply an ornament you wear around your neck. He will be a Savior who you believe upon. Who comes into your life. And He transforms you from the inside out. How do you see the cross? These men saw Him as a souvenir. There were a group of religious rulers around the cross when they looked upon the cross, they saw what was happening there as capital punishment given to a deserving criminal. I mean, these were religious men. These men understood Old Testament law. They were waiting on their Messiah. Jesus didn't fit the bill. He didn't look like what they wanted Him to look like. And so they missed Him. He's right in front of their face. Because He claimed to be the Son of God, they called Him a blasphemer and they demanded, according to their law, He was a criminal and He needed to be crucified. So when they looked upon the cross... They didn't see Jesus for what He was or who He was. They didn't see the cross as a bridge for an unholy man to get to a holy God. They didn't see any of that. They saw capital punishment for a deserving criminal. John 19, verse 6 and 7, When the chief priests and the officers saw Him, they cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Pilate said to them, Take Him for yourselves and crucify Him. I find no guilt in Him. And the Jews answered, because we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. He was a blasphemer, and to them, this was worthy capital punishment to a deserving criminal. There was another group of people beyond the soldiers and the religious rulers that looked that day. It was the the casual bystanders. They are just the observers looking on. They happened to be standing there when this man started dragging his cross down, and there was a larger than unusual crowd following him. Because the same crowd that had just a day before called him a few days before were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is now following behind this agonizing man crying, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And these curious bystanders, these onlookers are amazed because here is a man who's gone from the height of popularity with crowds thronging him in his popularity and in just a matter of a few hours has plummeted to the disdain of the very same crowd. One day it's Hosanna, the next day it is crucified and the onlookers are baffled at Jesus' fall from popularity. When I get this image in my mind about these people stopping their daily routines to gaze up at him, it's the same image that I have when I'm driving in rush hour traffic and somebody's had an accident and there's an ambulance there and it's terrible and yet the entire rush hour traffic comes to a halt because of rubbernecking and nosy people on they can't even go on about their day because they're stopping traffic to gaze upon somebody else's agony. And it's in that moment that these rubberneckers and onlookers are are, are stopping out of curiosity, gazing at the agony of this man, not seeing him for who he is, not understanding the depth of what he's accomplishing, but only being baffled by his fall from popularity. Luke 23, 35 says, And the people stood by watching. Just gazing with curiosity about what was happening. But notice, the rulers that I spoke of a moment ago, the religious rulers, they scoffed at Him saying, He saved others, let Him save Himself. Here's another instance where the religious rulers are looking upon Him and not seeing Him for what He is. They mocked Him and said, If He's the Savior of others, let Him save Himself. When I I see this and continually see these religious rulers coming up in Scripture, having more knowledge about the Word of God, and yet being further separated from the truth of who Jesus was, it strikes a concern in my heart. And let me give that concern to you. When we have preconceived ideas about God that are based on our traditions or our past experiences or our limited understanding and we put God in a box based on our preconceived notions about God when God does something outside our box it is easy for us to say God can't do that, that's not God because we have boxed Him in in our limited finite minds. There is a whole nation that missed Jesus as the Messiah. Here are men who are more trained in religious ways, more understood the Scriptures. They were looking for their Messiah. But because they had a preconceived idea of what that Messiah was going to be, they missed Him when He showed up. I want us to be careful that we don't become like these religious rulers. We become so dogmatic and so convinced and so... Here's what God spoke to me one day, pastoring this church. God wants to paint on the canvas of our lives. He wants to paint on the canvas of our church. He wants to paint His work on the canvas of our world. But here's what people do. We have the assumptions about God and what He's supposed to be when He shows up and about His power and what He can do. And so because of our theologies and doctrines and denominations and our backgrounds and our experiences and our traditions, we draw in this black marker on the canvas and say, Okay, God, this is what I know about You. Paint inside those lines. And then if God ever paints outside those lines, we miss Him because we are guilty in the same way they were guilty of having a preconceived idea and there are all of us we have our Catholic lines and our Baptist lines and our Methodist lines and our Pentecostal lines and we have our no faith at all background lines and and we've got all of these lines on this canvas and we want God to color in our lines and the word of God is if you will erase all of the lines on that canvas and give me a blank slate I will paint a new Pentecost a new move of God a new revival in your day and time when religious people carry with them preconceived ideas they become dogmatic enough that they crucified the son of god over we're living in dangerous times but yet more and more i witness people in our day that are not very different from religious rulers of that day it's just a subtle warning to us you know there were there were criminals in this story that saw the cross too Matter of fact, there was a criminal on one side that gazed upon the cross. He surveyed the wondrous cross. And what did he see? He saw another criminal. Scripture says in Luke 23 and 29, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He didn't look at the cross and see a Savior. He didn't look at the cross and see a King. He looked at the cross and saw another guilty man. If you're really who you say you are, save us. But on the other side was a man who was just as much a criminal, but he had a different perspective. One criminal saw another criminal being crucified, but the third criminal up there, or the third man up there, or the second criminal, saw a savior. In Luke 23:40, it says, "But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, "Do you not fear God?" since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The power of perspective You have two guilty men hanging on the outside of the only innocent man and one looks at the same cross and the same Savior and sees a criminal. The other man on the other side looks at the same cross and the same Savior and sees the Savior of the world and calls upon Him. It is the power of perspectives. And there are many perspectives that are in this room this morning. There are many things differently that happen when you see the cross. But the most important one of them is what happens to you when you look upon Christ does it evoke change does it call you to repentance do you see his love that has been demonstrated for you what do you see when you survey the cross the power of perspective that's the reason it is so important you know what, you can be so transformed by the power of the cross and you have a husband or a wife or, or you've got a son or a daughter who thinks that what's happening in your life is so unimportant. Or good, That's good for you, mom. It's good for you, dad. But their hearts are so, it's almost as if they're on this side of the cross and they look at the same thing you see and they just don't get it. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that do not believe. And I spend a lot of time praying over my loved ones and my family and my neighbors, praying that God would supernaturally remove the scales from their eyes so they would be able to see Jesus and the cross for who and what it is. And you need to join me over the next two weeks, and intercede in prayer. Because this is all about perspective. They can come in Easter Sunday and see a nice creative sermon. Or they can come in and see the power of the cross. They can see the love of God. But we need to pray that the the God of heaven and earth would remove the blinded eyes of them that do not believe that they would see a Savior. It's all about perspective. What do you see? when you survey the cross. You know, there were rulers that were set aside to guard Jewish law. And there's a story in John 19 of some of those rulers that were set aside to guard the Sabbath to make sure that none of the laws were broken in regard to the Sabbath. And one of the rulers of the Sabbath came to the soldiers. The, 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 the three men on the crosses, they weren't dying fast enough. And it was against the law to have any crucifixion going on on the Sabbath. So they needed these men to hurry up and die. So when those religious rulers guarding the Sabbath looked up and saw the cross, they saw an inconvenience. So that's when they told the Roman soldiers to break their legs so they would hurry up and die so they wouldn't offend the Sabbath, the law of the Sabbath. You you may not know why they wanted them to break their legs. It's because most of the people that died on the cross died by suffocation. There were nails in their hands, actually their wrists, and then through their feet. And the only way when your body is hunched down, hanging under the weight of your body on the cross, it causes your lungs to collapse and you cannot breathe. So most of them died by, by suffocation. So what they would do, through the pain of the nails in their hands and feet, they would pull against the spikes in order to catch a gasp of breath, and then they would let down, and eventually they got too tired to pull, and the pain was so severe, they eventually suffocated. But these men, the three, Jesus and the two criminals, were being, they were able to breathe to the point that they were going to stay alive into the Sabbath, and it was going to be very inconvenient for these people, and so break their legs, so therefore they cannot push up and breathe, and they will die quicker. And so John nineteen thirty-one says, since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, a holy day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. Now we know the story that Jesus, His legs were not broken. There was a prophecy in the Psalms that none of the bones of the Messiah would be broken. When they got to Jesus, He was already dead, so they didn't have to break His bones. But when these men looked upon the cross, they saw an inconvenience. And can I say to you something? They were right in some ways. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the call that it makes upon your life is not a call to convenience. Now I will tell you there are a lot of people today that will preach this book and they will preach the gospel and they will preach the message of God's love and God's grace to the point and they will make it as convenient as they know how to make it in order to get as many people willing to follow as possibly they can. But I want you to understand friend, serving God in this world is not a walk in the rose garden. Following Jesus is not, it's not just some life self-help development program. It is a message of the cross, and the cross is bloody. The cross is gory. The cross is death. We sing about death. We preach about death or, or life. We say it's a gospel of life. Before it can ever be a gospel of life, it has to first become a gospel of death. That means it's inconvenient. There is nothing about self denial that is convenient. There is nothing about the cross that is convenient. When you gaze upon the cross, don't look at Jesus to be another value added to your life. He didn't come into your life to make your life better, He came in to make a sinner saved by the grace of God. You don't add Jesus to your life like adding sugar to your sweet tea. You come to the cross and you die. So that the life of Christ can live in you. There was another man that saw the cross. His name was Joseph. He was from Arimathea. And I don't think Joseph was really sure what he saw. He just knew what he saw was special. Here's what the Bible says in Luke 23. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He didn't agree with Jesus being crucified. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This was a seeker, a man who was hungry for God. Verse 52, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen shroud, laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid before. More than likely, this was a tomb That Joseph had bought for his own grave or his own family. But when he looked upon the cross, his heart was hungry for God. He didn't really understand what he was seeing. But he knew that he was looking at something special. So special that what Pilate had planned for Jesus wasn't good enough. So Joseph, an influential man on the council, said, Pilate, let me have his body. And the heart of this hungry God seeker took Jesus and gave him a proper burial and laid his body in a borrowed tomb. Joseph wasn't sure what he was seeing, but he knew God was trying to reveal something through this man Jesus because he was hungry for the kingdom of God. He knew as a hungry seeker that something about this man, something about this cross could quench the thirst of the soul and the longing of the human heart. So he provided him a decent burial. Maybe the most important one who looked upon the cross that day was God Himself. He looked down from heaven and saw the cruelty and the agony that his son was going through, and he responded. Matter of fact, the Bible says that on that day, at that moment of time, the heavens turned black, the skies were dark. We get this idea of a thunderstorm rolling as Jesus took the weight of the sin of the world. He took your evil and my evil. The whole world's evil was placed upon him in one moment of time, and even nature responded and turned dark. As it is said by many that God had to turn, not bear the look of His Son bearing the agony. 2 Corinthians 5.21 said, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. In that one moment, every sin that you will ever commit, every sin in the whole world, in one almost atomic moment, it was placed upon Jesus. Nature responded, According to Habakkuk 1.13, God is too pure to even look upon evil. And it was in that moment when the sky turned dark and the Father turned away that the Son cried in Matthew 27.46, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? As He bore the moment of our sin. Some have asked, did God really forsake Him? Not at all. Jesus was actually quoting the 22nd Psalm. It was a Psalm about His own crucifixion. The psalmist had written it 600 years before Jesus died, and the first verse of that psalm is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the remaining verses are a call to God for help in the time of trouble. There's no doubt Jesus wasn't blaming His Father forsaking Him. He was quoting a psalm that is a cry for help. The issue is that when the Father looked upon the agony of His Son, that His heart... Was broken. It had to be one of the most sorrowful moments, yet one of the most sweet moments. Because while his son was bearing the agony, the father knew, as painful as it was, it was a necessary step for creation to have access to God. Again, what do you see when you survey the cross? I don't know what you see and I can't answer for you, but the way you answer that question will determine your life in eternity and it will also determine your victory in this present life. What do you see when you survey the cross? When I see the cross, I see my own sin. I see my own depravity in the realest way. When I look at the cross and to think, my evil caused that cross. My sin must really be wicked. It must really be evil for my sinfulness to cause that kind of agony to God. And when I look at the cross, I see the enormity and the depravity of my own sin. I had a revelation early in ministry. I had a friend named Clay. I met Clay a couple times at church camp. Um, Grew up in a church and Clay had had a trouble on and off with drug addiction and, and had a radical experience with God and got free of drug addiction and wound up enrolling in the same seminary that I went to because we were both from Arkansas. I, I talked to Clay a little bit. We had some classes together and we, we hung out together a little bit. And, and uh, through the years, I, 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 I had a distant relationship with Clay. And then one summer after seminary, Clay went home. We were still in seminary, but it was in between semesters. He went home began to dabble in drugs again, fell completely over the edge, and went on a binge. While on one of those binges, he walked into the home of his girlfriend, murdered her, her friend, her cousin, and all of their children, young children. There were seven people he murdered that night. As life has ironic twists, the last church that I pastored happened to be the hometown of Clay where he was in a life prison, federal prison, waiting on capital punishment for his murders. His mother still attended that church. And out of respect for her, I visited Clay. I wrote him letters, sent him sermons. I sit across from a, a man who wrote sermons after he got off the drugs and got his sanity back. I mean, a brilliant man. I sat there and I, I talked with him and I'm thinking Clay how could a guy like you do that and I, I sat there when they did the lethal injection in his body and he died and then I was there in the funeral looking at a casket of a man that I had gone to seminary with and paradoxically I'd watched be executed because of murder murders he did not deny and while I was sitting in that service that day In some ways, almost arrogant, thanking God I wasn't like Clay. And the Holy Spirit reminded me that the same propensity for evil that caused Clay's demise is inside of me and every other person in that room. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The sin of Adam and Eve has been passed on to every one of us today. And inside the heart of man, while there is a lot of goodness, there is a bent towards evil. A sin nature that is on the inside of us. And there is little that separates Brian and Clay Smith except for the grace of God. When I look at the cross, Maybe I walk around in arrogance, but when I look at the cross, it brings me to an understanding of the nature of my depravity. When I look at the cross, not only do I see my sin, but I I see the holiness of God and God's desire to judge sin. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Listen to me, friend. I realize that our church, not our church, the church, has labeled holiness a lot of different things. The way you dress and a lot of different things that we have used the word holiness and it's got a bad name and we look at it like legalism, but hear me. To live an unholy life is to do anything that is displeasing to God, to grieve His Spirit, to sin. And don't think because we live in a new culture in a new day that God winks at sin or He scoffs at sin because when I look at the cross, I'm made aware of my own sin and I am reminded that God requires holiness and He will judge sin. He does not wink or scoff at sin. The resistance that we have to sin. We've grown numb to sin. We watch things, do things, go places. We're involved in things we would have never been involved with because our hearts have become compromised. We have not gazed upon the cross, understood the holiness of God and the judgment of God, and it would do all of us some good to reacquaint ourselves with His holiness. But if sin and judgment were all I could see, when I looked at the cross, there would really be no reason for me to live. Because when I look at the cross, what trumps my sin, what trumps the need to be holy, what trumps the, 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 the pressure to uh, the, the, the judgment of God, when I look at the cross, I see an expression of love like no other place in all of the world. I see a love greater than my sin. I see a love that trumps the judgment of God. When I look at the cross, I see love. I want the team to come back to the platform and prepare our hearts this morning. What do you see? Listen to what Scripture says. Psalm 85 and 10. Mercy and truth are met together, but righteousness and peace have kissed each other. There's this judgment of God, this part of His nature that is holy that must be satisfied. There's this love of God that says He's willing that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And that mercy of God has to be satisfied. And ironically, the cross was the place where truth and mercy met together. Where righteousness and peace came together. Because the cross, on one hand, is the most severe act of judgment you'll ever find. And on the other hand, it is the most sincere expression of love that humanity has ever known. It satisfies the love of God. It satisfies the judgment of God. And ultimately, it is a bridge for man to cross to come into a relationship with Christ. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the one we've seen held up behind Phil Gold's for years says it better than any, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believeth in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Yeah, when I look upon the cross, I see my sin. When I look upon the cross, I'm made aware of God's holiness. I'm made aware of His judgment on sin. But ultimately, when I look upon the cross, I see a love that is greater than my sin. And at the end of the day, when I look upon the cross, I see power. I want you to understand, I really believe, church, I I really believe that we in this room live below the power that is available to us as children of God through the cross. I don't believe we appropriate the power of the cross that is available to our lives. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, the Scripture says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Jesus. That's why it is through Him, Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for His glory. That says all of the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen the promise of salvation the promise of healing the promise of provision the promise of deliverance the promise of restoration in Christ those, the scripture is full of promises that are available to you because of God spoke them but the amen the yes to those promises the confirmation to those promises the validation of those promises is in Christ and the cross had Jesus died and didn't rise from the dead it would have been Babel. But he validated everything the book says, everything God says, everything He says by rising on the third day, validating all that He promised through His resurrection. So today, if you need a Savior, maybe you've been made aware of your sin today. Maybe this is a Brian Chisholm moment for you, the guy that Maybe wouldn't have never responded on any normal day, but God set this day up just like it is so that you could see the cross and see your need for a Savior. He wants you to see His love. Yes, understand your sin. Understand His call to holiness, but more than anything, see His love. A love that calls you into relationship with Him. If you need a healer, I'm just going to be honest with you as a pastor this week. My heart has been broken in compassion over families in this church whose lives are touched by cancer. There's a lot of other sickness, a lot of other disease, but in my heart I'm a little angry right now that so many people that I love and care about in my family and in this church have been touched by cancer. And I just believe... You know, I don't know why God does sometimes and He doesn't. He heals sometimes and He doesn't heal others. But because I don't understand that does not mean that I should cease to pray and appropriate the power of the cross that is there to heal sickness and disease. It said in His Word, Isaiah 53, He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He bore our sorrows. He carried His grief. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And by His stripes we are healed. There is power available for my sin in the cross. Power available in my sorrow in the cross. Power available for my sickness in the cross. I see my sin, I see His holiness I, I see His love but I see power what do you see? what do you see? Paul says I'm going to boast about nothing but the cross of our Master Jesus Christ because of that Christ because of that cross I have been crucified in relation to the world set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into the little patterns they dictate I don't know how many of them are present today because of the weather but in just a minute I'm going to ask for the people on our prayer team to come and they're going to make themselves available here in this altar and to pray. And what I'm going to ask you to do while these people sing is I'm going to ask you to survey the cross. I'm going to ask you to gaze upon it. I'm going to ask you to think about it. I'm asking you to reflect upon the suffering savior that was there for you. I want you to see your sin. I want you to see His holiness. I want you to see His love for you. But I want you to understand the power that is available for you in Christ through the cross. And our prayer team is going to be available down here. I believe in my heart there were miracles that happened in this altar this Sunday morning in the first service. With this few of us that were here, God did something special. You cannot preach the cross and God not respond. You cannot gaze upon the cross and appropriate its power in faith and God not respond. Somebody's going to come to faith in Christ today. I believe God can heal somebody today. God can restore today. He can provide today. If you need a miracle, when these prayer elders gather around the front of this building, we're going together by faith appropriate the power of the cross for salvation, for healing, for restoration, for deliverance. And I want us to trust God God To meet us in this room today. Stand to your feet with me if you will, prayer team. I want you to come, and while they come, I want you to sing this. Come on.